You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. Welcome back to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. This is episode 11 and I wanted to take a minute first of all to just say thank you so much for all of the love and the comments and the messages on the previous episodes so far. I really believe in every story that I've put out there and the importance of people hearing them. So thank you also for sharing them and for spreading the word because that is literally what this is all about. I'm very, very happy to be sharing today's episode with you as well. I got the opportunity to interview an absolute hero of mine. And we talk about something that is very, very important to me. An action that our government has just taken that is one of the most inhumane decisions of our time. In this episode, I talked to Lord Alf Dubs. If you don't know who he is, then it's a very good job that you're here and about to find out. Alf is or was a child refugee himself. He fled the Nazis in Prague in 1939 when he was six, and over 80 years later, he's still fighting for the rights of child refugees today, and he's coming up to 90. We recorded this interview at the Refugee Solidarity Summit in London, on stage in front of an audience for the first time, and I was pretty starstruck, I have to say, but Alf did not disappoint. This man has done so much for so many people and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to him. He is a legend. I really hope you enjoy it, but most importantly, I really hope that everybody in the UK and beyond understands the decisions that our government has been making on our behalf. Um, Alf gives some pretty shocking insights into this and I will let him explain more. Introducing Jazz O'Hara from Worldwide Tribe, who is in conversation with Alf Dubs. Okay. Uh, uh. Guys, this is very exciting because this is the first ever live recording of the Worldwide Tribe podcast. We've never done it in front of an audience before. And it's an absolute honor to be on this stage with Lord Alf Dubs for the occasion. To give you a bit of context, the Worldwide Tribe podcast aims to amplify voices Voices that often, too often, go unheard. Stories of migration, people that are caught up in the refugee crisis, whether that be as volunteers, like many people here who have worked in the space, or whether people have made the journey themselves. For example, Gowali here at the front, he's been a previous guest on the podcast. It's a very good episode. And talking of incredible stories, 
Lord Alfdubs, you have one of your own. Maybe we can start with what happened to you in 1939 when you were six. Uh, okay, well, I lived in Prague. Uh, what happened was my father was Jewish, my mother wasn't. And my father said if the Nazis come, he's going to get out. And his cousin said they'll take their chance, and they were taken to Auschwitz in 1942. So there was something really horrible happening. But my father, my father left. My mother was then refused permission to leave, so she put me on a kinder transport run by that wonderful Nicky Winton. Okay, so I'm just going to interrupt here for a second with a little bit of context because I've been doing my research on this, and I think that it's helpful to share what I've been learning. So, kinder transport was the name given to the mission which saved 10,000 children from Nazi-controlled Europe before World War II by transporting them to Britain. It's called this because Kinder means children in German. And the mission was started by this amazing man called Sir Nicholas Winton. And I'd love to also take a minute here to just tell you a little bit about him because what I've been reading about him is, is also amazing. So Winton was born to German-Jewish parents, but already lived in England. They'd emigrated to England. And when he was 29 in 1938, instead of going on a skiing holiday to Switzerland as planned, last minute he decided to visit Prague instead to see what he could do to help his friend, who was helping Jewish children here, escape the Nazis. He quickly set up a makeshift office at a dining room table of a hotel and from there he started an organisation to help children from Jewish families flee the Nazis. The House of Commons had basically said that they would allow the entry of refugees under the age of 17 into Britain but only if they had somewhere to stay. So Winton basically found homes and arranged the safe journey of hundreds of children to England and one of those children was Lord Alf Dubbs. So what Winton achieved was massive and it went pretty much unnoticed, actually, for over 50 years until 1988 when the BBC reunited him with some of the children that he had saved, of which there were hundreds. And then in 2003, Winton was knighted for services to humanity um, in saving Jewish children from Nazi Germany. He died in 2015, aged 106. It's a pretty amazing life. For now, let's go back to Alf's journey to safety when he was six. Before I left, you know, Germans came in, and in, in, the, in the front cover of my school book, there was a picture, picture of the Czech president, President Benish. We had to tear that out and stick in a picture of Hitler. So there were things, things like that which stuck in my memory. And then my mother seeing me off on the train, long train journey, two days, hard wooden seats, but as a six-year-old, you don't notice that. I, I didn't eat anything. I, I, my mum had packed some sandwiches in a little, a little pack. I, I hadn't touched them. And um, when we got to the Dutch border, the older ones cheered because they knew we were out of reach of the Nazis. And uh, I, I just knew it was significant, but I didn't know why. And then we got to across Holland. I was looking for, uh, looking for windmills and wooden shoes. That's all I knew about <laughs> Holland. I didn't see any. It was dark. And we got to the Hook of Holland and then Harwich and then to Liverpool Street. So wow. that, was, that was a journey. But I was luckier than most. Some of them never saw their parents again. Uh, and some of them, the parents connected up with them later. Uh, so in one sense, I, I was lucky because I, I had a father, father in London. Uh, he died soon after, but I had a father in London. And then my mother, who was refused permission, managed to escape at the last minute. So I had my mum my mom look after me. Great, because many people, or many of the children that were with you, they were the only people from the families that actually survived the war often, right? 
That's that's right. I think a fair number, a fair number, never 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 saw their parents again. So there was a heartbreaking scene at the station in Prague when my mum and all the parents were seeing their children off, and uh, most of the parents, I think, were just saying to themselves, "We may never see our children again." And, you know, I was six. Uh, I didn't understand the significance of that, but uh, I still have a vision of my mother standing there with a friend, uh, looking very anxious, and German soldiers with swastikas in the background, and. That, that was before the train left. And what was amazing to me to read is that you were one of over 10,000 children that came to the UK in that time. And actually there was no cap on how many people or children the UK wanted to accept at that time, right? There was no limit to this program. Well, there were 10,000 that came on kinder transport from Germany, Austria and Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. Of course, the limit was reached when the war started and all that, all that came to an end. There wasn't, I think, quite the fuss that is made now about refugees which is a sad comment, although I, I still believe most British people support the idea of child refugees if the argument is put to them. Alf's words here break my heart. When he says there wasn't quite the fuss there is now made about refugees, what he's referring to is that our government has refused to accept or welcome thousands of child refugees in Europe currently in the same position as Alf was as a kid during World War II. And this, as he says, is not a reflection of what he believes that the people of the UK actually want or know to be right. My next question to him was very important for anyone with ambitions of lordship. So from that point, how did you become a lord? How does one become a lord? <laughs> well, well, sounds so good, doesn't it? Well, lord I t- okay, okay can, I, can I put it this way? I, when I was about 13 or 14, I became passionately interested in politics at a time when most of my contemporaries wouldn't have been. Uh, I think at the time I felt that, that something awful had happened uh, evil men in politics had done dreadful things, and maybe politics could also be used for the better. So my ambition was to um, become a local councillor, uh, uh, which I managed. And then I had to go, and I got into the House of Commons, and I became MP for Battersea, and I lost that. And, and then eventually they put me in the Lords, which is a sign of political life after death. But the thing about the Lords is it's an opportunity to do things if you, if you get there. So I've tried yeah, to do that. A platform. And you really have. I mean, most people here and many people know you for the Dubs Amendment, right? And that was an amendment to the Immigration Act in 2016. Am I right in thinking that initially that amendment was for 3,000 children? Again, just for extra clarity here, because the political stuff, for me, can sometimes be a little bit complicated. So the Dubs Amendment is an amendment to the Immigration Act of 2016 to offer unaccompanied refugee children safe passage to Britain during the European refugee crisis. But again, Alf explains it way better than I can. There's quite a story about that. We heard, I think through Save the Children, that there were 95,000 unaccompanied child refugees somewhere in Europe, Mm -hmm. mainly in in, in, in northern France, in Greece, and in Italy. And 10,000 of them had disappeared, according to Interpol. And that's shocking. You know, if one child disappears here, we all go hunting, and it's desperate. And yet there were uh, 10,000 just disappeared. Anyway, so I put down this amendment. I got help and advice from people and colleagues in the Commons. And then I was asked by the government to withdraw the amendment. I just want to reiterate... 
the important point that he makes here, right? Because if one child goes missing in England, then it's all over the news. But there were literally 10,000 children missing in Europe and extra vulnerable children as well, because most of them had already fled a war or maybe they'd lost their parents or family members along the way. And when Alf proposed taking 3,000 of the 95,000 of them fending for themselves in Europe, guess who said no? Theresa May was then the Home Secretary and she summoned me in to see her and um, she wanted me to withdraw the amendment. Uh, I said, but why? And these children are living in desperate circumstances. I mean, it's really dangerous, they're vulnerable, it's horrible for them, awful, awful. And she said, no, if these children come, others will follow. So I said, we can't turn our backs on them. So I, I refused to withdraw the amendment and then it passed in the Lords it was narrowly defeated in the Commons. Some of my friends in the Commons said, sit in, sit in the public gallery and give them the eye. I'm not sure what giving them the eye, but I glared at them. <laughs> uh, and um, anyway, and it, but we had to drop the 3,000 figure. Uh, this, is all, this is total parliamentary gobbledygook. Do you want it? Yeah, Parliament, absolutely. Really want give it to me. Give me all the gobbledygook. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the original amendment had 3,000, which seemed to be the UK's share of, of the 95,000. Most people said it's too small a number anyway, but there we are. And then when the amendment passed the Lords and got to the Commons, the, the, the government, they invoked something called financial privilege. It's basically, if the Lords pass an amendment which involves expenditure, then the Speaker says it's got financial privilege. And normally, normally the, the government waive it and so there's a proper debate. But there wasn't a debate, they just used that as the argument. And we had to drop the 3,000 figure uh, so we just had to have a statement of support for child refugees. So basically the government played any card that they could to not have to agree to the 3,000 figure, saying instead that this number should be flexible and committing to absolutely nothing until... And then a wonderful thing happened. Public opinion became aware of this. Things on television like that little Syrian boy drowned, Alan Curley, drowned mm. on the Mediterranean beach. That was a big turning point, I it's, think, for public it's opinion. Sent Other people seen drowning in those little dinghies and things. And I think that sent shockwaves around. Mm. And I think people felt, you know, we had to do something. And so Theresa May summoned me in again and said they proposed to accept the amendment, which I thought was good. And then, of course, they backtacked a bit. And the immigration minister had first said to me, we'll accept the letter and spirit of the amendment, which I thought ought to get us near to 3,000. Too few, but better than no figure. Absolutely. And, and then the government said, I'm going to cap it at 480. Well, 360 and then 480. I said, why? And they said, because local authorities can't find any more foster families. And we disproved that. I mean, Lewisham, for example, uh, you know, and a lot of others have all, have all come forward and said, we, we, we can provide places. And in the end, through an NGO that I work with, Safe Passage, we got about 15, 1,600 commitments. So we said to the government, you know, this is not right. Uh, and council like Lewisham approached the Home Office and the Home Office didn't respond. Uh, and so it seems to be they were being less than honest with this 480 figure, which they still haven't reached. And it's pretty miserable. It's a pretty miserable response. So Theresa May went on to take in a truly pathetic number of child refugees. But not only this, she lied about why. The government insisted that they chose this number because it was the limit of what local councils could accommodate, that there was not enough foster families to accept the children. But, as Al says, many councils had foster families ready and waiting to accept children and no children to place them with. And ministers basically later explained this away by saying that there had been an administrative error. 
In my personal experience of this, I've met many families who would be willing to take in refugees, but the only refugee children arriving to the UK are getting here illegally, like my own three little foster brothers who hid under trains and in the back of refrigerated lorries and did anything that they could to get here. Not providing a legal route forces children to risk their lives like this, and many are not as lucky as my three brothers and don't make it here at all. We already had the Dublin Treaty, mm-hmm. uh, the EU Treaty, uh, which allowed children with, with, with family here to apply to join their family. But So we already had that EU Treaty to help, and mine was intended for those who didn't have family here. OK, so hopefully you're getting all of this, because just to complicate things a little bit more, we're going to introduce another bit of legislation with a confusingly similar name. So you might have already heard of the Dublin Treaty. It's not directly linked to Dubs's amendment, but it does also apply to refugees because this regulation already existed all over Europe to help decide which country is responsible for your asylum claim. So basically, if you already have a close family member in the EU, you should be able to legally seek asylum there under the Dublin Treaty. Make sense? The reason why I ask this and the reason why I have this interest, I guess, is a personal interest because my family is a foster family. I have three foster brothers who all were unaccompanied minors who came via the Calais jungle. Um, The first one, my Eritrean brother, Mez, he crossed the Sahara Desert, he crossed the Mediterranean, he lived in Calais when he was 12, and he arrived in the UK when he was 13 in 2015 after an incredible journey. He didn't speak any English. Five years later, he's done his GCSEs, he's doing his A-levels. It's an incredible story, but he has a brother who also left Eritrea a couple of years later, also fleeing compulsory military service, and he now wants to be reunited with his brother. So I'm interested into whether he would be eligible and at what point he might be eligible along his journey to legally come to the UK ever. Well, the, 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 although the government have done the dirty on child refugees in the more recent, uh, in the more recent uh, legislation, that, the, the Dublin Treaty still applies till the end of this year, end of December. So I would have thought he would have a claim. So with this amazing news, I actually went away after this interview and looked into this. And the problem is that the treaty is very restrictive. So it only applies to those that are already in the EU and Meza's brother would first have to make it from the camp in Ethiopia to Europe before they could apply to be reunited, basically. So for him, this means crossing the Sahara, crossing the Mediterranean, and even then, there are loads of other rules um, and restrictions within the treaty. For example, as a parent, you can apply for your child to join you, but as a child, you cannot apply for your parents to join you. So my understanding now, having done this research, is that Mez and his brother do not currently have a claim, or any way of actually legally being reunited. The only way would be for Mez's brother to make the same journey as Mez did five years ago, crossing borders illegally. Um, But things have got even more dangerous since Mez made the journey. So Mez doesn't want his brother to do this, basically. If you're keen to hear Mez's story in full, then he actually tells it in season one in episode five and six, and it's incredible. Anyway, back to Alf and the most recent proposition that he made to Parliament. Let's talk about what's happening right now. Many of you may have seen that this amendment and child refugees have been back at the forefront of our minds and our newspapers, what's been happening in the last couple of weeks. 
Okay, well, what happened was that we were, we were concerned, I'm going back a year or two, we were concerned that the Dublin Treaty might die a death when we've left the EU. So I moved an amendment in the Lords to say that the government should negotiate to continue that treaty even after we've left the EU. And that, we had a, quite a big vote and we won that in the Lords. The government accepted that in the Commons and we thought, well and good. You know, it's there, and all they've got to do is to negotiate, and there can be hardly any, any problem because it's just continuing something we've got already. Well, there might be problems, but I didn't think it was going to turn out the way it did. And then, just before Christmas, the government, after the elections, the government published a new withdrawal bill, which has now become an act, and in that, they deleted the provision that the government should uh, uh, make arrangements for, for the child refugees to join their families after we left the EU. Mm-hmm. And that was deleted. And we couldn't understand why that happened. Everybody was absolutely shocked because what is more humane than children joining their families? I mean, it's just unbelievable. And it works because you don't even need local authority foster homes, you know, because if there's a family there, then, 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 then yeah. the children can, can simply join the family. And we were, I was really shocked. And the first time the minister phoned me up, uh, one of the Home Office ministers, and said, well, we need flexibility. And I didn't understand why you need flexibility. It was a very simple thing. What, what flexibility do you want? So, uh, and then I had a, then I was summoned to a meeting with three government ministers, for heaven's sake, three Home Office ministers, plus seven officials. So there were 10 of them, and me, against me. And uh, they were trying to explain this. And they went through a lot of excuses. It's, you know, it, it may seem very sort of uh, remote and we're just talking and sitting in, a, sitting in an office in a palace of Westminster. It's about children living in the most terrible conditions, children desperate to join their families, you know, children vulnerable to criminal, criminality, to trafficking, to drugs, or horrible, horrible, vulnerable young people, frightened and lonely, having traveled s- such a long way. And that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not the dry, dry thing of is it close 17 or close 37. It's actually about human beings who need a chance in their lives and who at the moment haven't got one. So, you know, one can feel, you know, I, I, you know, I vary between being very angry and being tearful about it because it's such a shocking thing. Anyway, they said, well, it's not in the, it shouldn't be in the 2018 Act. I said it got passed. Well, it, doesn't, it should be in something else. So I said, what? Well, it could be in the immigration bill coming along. Well, we haven't got that yet. How do I know we'll get it through? And they said, well, you don't need it, you don't, you don't need it at all. We just give you our word. We're committed to bringing in children. I looked at them. So they, they said to me, well, don't you believe us? <laughs> it's very difficult facing three government ministers. I said, look, personally, I believe you, but I don't believe the government. I said, I just don't trust the government. Why don't you trust the government? Well, every time we won the 20, in 2016 or in 2018, it was a battle. The government didn't want the, the, the amendments, and we had to fight the government and win despite the government. So, of course... You know, everything we've won for refugees, we have won by argument and, and, and by public uh, support and mm-hmm. so on. Not because in your good grace you've given that to us. So how am I supposed to trust the government? It's been an uphill struggle. When you, you're faced with these people that are making, because as you say, there seems to be one decision that is humane and the obvious choice to support child refugees reuniting with their family. Mm. And the other decision seems inhumane, shocking and just straight up wrong. So it, when you're faced with people that are voting in this way, what do you really think is the underpinning, underlying reason? 
Well, you know, some of you have asked me that. I don't know. You should ask a government minister. When I said it to them, I mean, the reasons were, technically, it's, it shouldn't be in that, in, in, in that Act of Parliament. You shouldn't put in an Act of Parliament the government should negotiate. So how do we get you to negotiate? And, and, and then they say, well, we can just, we're just committed to child refugees. Don't you believe us? So the one undertaking they gave was in two months' time, a minister will stand up in Parliament and explain what's happening. And I said, look, we fought hard. We won debates in Parliament. We won votes to get where we are. We gave hope to young people. And now you're taking it away without any assurance about anything. So uh, and I, you know, my view is that, that why, if you're not mean and nasty, why look as if you're mean and nasty? Exactly. Uh, and I have to be convinced you're not mean and nasty because this is a shocking, shocking thing to be doing. So I get quite emotional about it. I tell you this though, three government ministers, not the three I met, but three other government ministers came up to me and said, keep going, keep going with this, we're with you. We don't understand why the government are doing what they're doing. I said, why don't you tell them? They said, it's above my pay grade, said one minister. A lot of members of the Lords and some Tory MPs have also said to me, they support this, they support a family union for child refugees. You know, so, but, but there was such discipline from Boris Johnson, much tighter than before, so that they didn't dare vote the other way. But I'm hoping that with public pressure, and this occasion is fantastic, I mean, it's wonderful to boost public pressure. Um, I think with public pressure, we've got to keep at them. We mustn't let go, and, uh, and they'll have to concede something. They've already said far more under pressure than they said originally. So the answer is, I don't know why they're doing it. I don't know why they're behaving like that. Some, somebody in number 10 has decided they don't like, didn't like the amendment for whatever reason. We'll need to get someone on the podcast on the next episode, maybe another minister who can try and explain why they are voting in that way. It sounds like it really has been an uphill battle that, as you say, you haven't had the support of the government behind you when making these amendments and putting these ideas forward. What is it that keeps you going with this? Well, look, i tell you what it is. It's people like the ones here. Uh, and it's the wonderful volunteers and NGOs working in Cali and working on the Greek, on the Greek islands and so on. There are people who are, you know, they are so passionate and they're so committed and they're so wonderful. And I can't stop because of them. So, you know, I feel there's so much, I've had so much support. Look, I've got the publicity, but actually there's so many people who've been doing the good work, many of them here, but other people as well. And they've all been doing this, this shown this high level of commitment. Uh, and and uh, just because I get the publicity, people think it's all me. It isn't me. It's not a solo effort. But I can't step away from it when there's so many people so committed to it. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that if people had experienced not just what you had as a child, but also going to Calais, what many of us here have experienced and going to Lesbos and seeing the situation there, that everybody would make the same decision, right? Everybody would support. Well, I think it's very hard if you've, got, if you've gone, seen a situation in Calais or on the Greek islands on. It's very hard not to be even more passionate and committed mm-hmm. on behalf of the people who are suffering so much there, particularly the children. You'd have to have a heart of stone not to be emotionally influenced by seeing what's, go- what's going on. And I would love to take some of these government ministers with me and take them to the Tomoya camp in Lesbos and say, look, this is, these people have no hope. Can you give some of them just a little bit of hope that there's a better life and the UK can provide it for some of them at least? 
I've never said we can take everybody in the, in the refugee camps. After all, there are three or four million in Turkey and a million in Syria and a million in Jordan and so on. But I, I think we can, we can play our part and we can do more than we're doing and we can give particular priority to vulnerable people, including children. I could not agree more. Talking of our part, can we talk a little bit about what Britain has done in comparison or is doing in comparison to some of the other European countries, for example, Germany and Sweden? And Germany, I think Germany is wonderful. But Angela Merkel asked other countries to play their part and share responsibility, and they didn't. Well, we did a little. I'll come on to some of the countries who are even worse than we are, if that's, if that, if that's possible. Um, but I, I think that there's a political problem, and we've seen it in Germany, where she was quite badly hit in the elections by a very right-wing anti, mm. anti, anti-migrant party. And we've seen that in Italy, and we've seen it in, in other countries. And the worst, of course, are some of the, the Visegrad countries, that's Hungary, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and Poland. Uh, and the Hungarian official position is, uh, refugees are not our problem, we only want white Christians. And that's a stated policy of the government. And the Czechs uh, are not better, and the Poles and, 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 and Slovaks aren't either. So we've got, we've got a one end of Europe, we, we've got people who are not willing to do anything. And then in the middle of Europe, we've got the Germans and the Swedes who have done pretty well. The Austrians are not keen. And we've got a resurgence of right-wing politics. And the right-wing parties cynically using the refugee issue as a way of trying to get electoral support. And unfortunately, some of them have managed to get electoral support in Italy, Hungary, Germany, and so on, which, which is a tragedy, which is why I, I keep repeating, we've, in Britain, we've got to keep public opinion on our side. We've got to go out of our way to tell the public what's going on, why it's important, and that we're a humanitarian country, and so on. And with public support, we can still avoid, avoid the resurgence of that sort of fascism. Absolutely. And how do you think, as individuals, we can continue to keep that public support? And what, what can we do as individuals? To... Well, first of all, we've all got to believe in ourselves and what we're doing. And that's great for today, because you've got, you've got a high level of commitment here. And we, we've really got to believe, as we all we do here, uh, that this is so important. It's a test of the sort of country we are. It's a test of whether we are humanitarian. So we've then got to let our voice be heard and speak out loud and clear whenever there's a chance and of course, we're all the converted, so you know, and that's wonderful. Uh, but we've also got to talk to the unconverted. So I think it's important we, we, we lobby our MPs so that the MPs know that there's pressure on behalf of child refugees, on behalf of family reunion, particularly. Uh, we need to talk to local councillors and get the local councillors on board. Now, Lushim, Lushim here, great. Uh, other, but, but if the MPs are doing a good job, pat them on the back and say, well done. And if the local councillors are doing a good job, pat them on the back and say, well done. But, but make, them, make it known that they are doing a good job and use your voice in any other organisation, trade union, whatever it is, where you can actually let your voice be heard on behalf of child refugees. We've got to have that singing out loud and clear that that's where we stand and that's what we support. And then public opinion will be on our side, and public, I think it is now, and we've got to keep it on our side, and that puts pressure on the government. We might have five more minutes, I think, in case anybody else has any questions. Um, then this is the moment. I know no one wants I to be the you've first. Dealt, you've dealt no with. one wants to be the first. <laughs> yes, Gowali, I could have, I should have counted on you. Thankfully, the amazing Gowali Pasali was right at the front of the audience. You might remember him from our podcast episode together not so long ago. 
Um, the microphone didn't make it to him, but basically he started by heckling me about how my interviewing skills and my guests were getting better and better. And then he asked Alf about Brexit and about how we can use it to support refugees and to hold the government accountable to also do so. Well, first of all, can I say it's lovely to see you here and we, we've met on a number of occasions before and your book is great and I, I think you're doing a fantastic job. So thank you, thank you very much indeed for what you're doing. You're certainly helping the thing along. Well, look, as far as Brexit is concerned, oh, I think we've got to keep our sights on beyond Europe as well as within Europe. So firstly, I would like to see within Europe, even if we're not in the EU, I would like to see us work hard with other countries so we can get a, a, a Europe-wide strategy for refugees. The, the rights of refugees and so on, there should be uniformity, a better level of uniformity across all countries. And there are things that vary. For example, a child when a refugee comes here, reaches age of 18, and they don't have any security anymore. In some countries, it's better than that. So I think we should have higher standards and a Europe-wide, provided sympathetic, a Europe-wide approach. Then we have to look at other countries, what the situation is there. But I have to say, um, the ones arriving in Greece, the situation in Greece is terrible. The Greeks aren't able to cope. And we all have to help, help the Greeks to deal with this. You, you know, it, just putting all the responsibility on them. And we say, well, it's too far away from us. So there's that. And then, and, and then of course, we have to look at, look at people in the, in the region. By the region, ALF means countries like Lebanon, Turkey and Jordan, who host millions of refugees between them. We can't, take, we can't take all those. I wouldn't suggest it because the public mightn't buy it. But we could do a bit more in looking at the vulnerable people. There is a small vulnerable person scheme, which is uh, about 4,000 a year from the region, Syria, Jordan and Lebanon. And that's being extended for one year. That should be extended and enlarged. So we take more from there. And of course, let's not forget, how many, there are a million Rohingyas who fled Myanmar and are in southern Bangladesh. Now, I'm not saying they can come here, but I'm saying we shouldn't forget that there are desperate refugee situations a long way away from Europe and the Middle East as well. Uh, and we have to be careful not to... Well, I think we should go out of our way to make sure that Bangladesh gets enough support. It's, I've, I looked at, I've been to the Rohingya camps years ago. It's awful there, and they're just hemmed in in a strip of land next to Myanmar, and they were treated very badly as well. So This is a very interesting point for us to have finished on, because, as you might remember... I was just in this very camp in Bangladesh, close to the Myanmar border, a couple of months ago at the end of last year. So the next two podcast episodes were recorded there in Kutapalong, in the biggest refugee camp in the world, home to over one million Rohingya people. And if you don't know much about this group of people, then my next two guests will be specifically focusing on the Rohingya people and the situation in Bangladesh. But let's finish off with the amazing ALF first. You know, there are about 35, 30 to 35 million refugees in the world and about 30 million displaced persons. Displaced persons being people who've found safety in another part of their own country. That's 65 million people. And, you know, we have to, we have to be aware of what's going on beyond, beyond Europe's shores as well. Lord Alf Dubs, thank you so much for being here and fighting this fight and continuing to. We are all behind you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And can I say thank you, thank you, thank you for your your questions are pretty good, you know. <laughs> you could knock spots off the BBC and all these other people. <laughs> oh, well, I like I like the much. BBC, but uh, you you you, 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 could, you could get on the news night tonight with that. But listen, <laughs> yeah. but thank you. I was. I just got back from Bangladesh. Huh?
This conversation makes it very clear what we've all gained from Nicholas Winton's Kinder Transport. Alf is an incredible and invaluable addition to our society here in the UK, and he's one of many notable people saved, with no fewer than four of the Kinder Transport children going on to become Nobel Prize winners. Just think, if the children surviving alone in Europe now, after fleeing a war, were given the same chance to reach their potential, who knows what they could achieve? If you enjoyed today's episode, then please subscribe and leave us a review. It will help me to keep bringing you more stories like this. And to let me know your thoughts or what you'd like to hear more of on this podcast, then message me on Instagram at The Worldwide Tribe. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. Big thanks to Alexander Wells for composing our original music and mixing this episode.